and welcome to Free the Bag, a podcast where we're collectively liberating these coins to be Black and free, hosted by... Me, I'm Asia, and... Me, Isanet. Today is June 19th, 2020. We are experiencing a pandemic called COVID-19. Many of us are in quarantine, but also there is a Black uprising trying to dismantle and defund the police system. And it is also Juneteenth. Yes. Happy Juneteenth, y'all. Happy Juneteenth, y'all. Especially for all of us who are just coming to understand that Juneteenth is even a holiday. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to Blackness. (laughs) Welcome to Blackness. And welcome to understanding, yeah, Black power, right? Black history, Black freedom. And so Juneteenth was a celebration of the freeing of enslaved Black people in the United States. It's a celebration of that. So while, you know, the United States usually views the independence as July 4th, Juneteenth, for a a lot of Black people going back to all the way in 1865, is the celebration of Black independence right? Because that is sort of our first experience of freedom on this land, the land Turtle Island and all of many of the other beautiful ways in which um, Indigenous folks have come to describe the land we are on now that is currently known as the United States. Yes, thank you. Uh, So we've come a long way, Asia. Lord have mercy. (sighs) (sighs) We've come a very, very long way. And you know, part of why we decided to even make this podcast, like, yo, was off of, you know, trying to have these conversations over dinner, you know, <laughs> watching Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> and, and, yep, Harry Potter, although mm, not no more. Not anymore. <laughs> not no more. Um, but watching... <laughs> You know, trying to have these conversations about how to be Black and free in terms of our, our finances and really having a great deal of respect for the folks out there doing that work for um, Black folk, for Black women, but really noticing that a lot of their advice either involved a, a huge, like a good amount of like sacrifice, like, oh, you know, get rid of these things, which in some ways we need them to be able to, to tend to our trauma and tend to our, our, our self-care. Um, And also just the amount of individualism that is involved, right, with budgeting and with saving that is, you know, all you have to do is do these things and you will be okay. Where it's like, what about the people who are with me in this work and in this project with me? Um, And so we wanted to create something that thought about the collective that also viewed not only money as a resource, but time as a resource, our people as a resource, and our bodies as a resource, right? Like all of those things are resources that time, people, and our bodies are things we actually don't get back. Whereas we can get money back, but we can't get those things back. And so how are we using them to get free together? Yeah, for sure. Thank you for mentioning all of that. And historically, our bodies, our time have been used in in ways that have been harmful to us. And so we get to reimagine them together collectively. Uh, so who are we? 
<laughs> so we're gonna uh, in introduce ourselves using using things that we often use in in organizing circles and just in our in the communities that Asia and I are part of. So we're gonna share our name, our pronouns, identities, and who our people are. Oh. We're also gonna talk a little bit about how we're freeing the bag during this specific time. My name is Isanet. She, her, Asia pronouns. I am a black. Dominican queer woman. I am in my late 20s and my people are farmers. My people are land sovereignty organizers, food sovereignty organizers. My people also hold all these identities that I hold. They're Black, they're Black Dominican, they're um, Black Dominican queer people. My people are also part of the cooperative economic solidarity economy movement. And my people are magic makers. They're creating jobs and careers, things that, that white supremacy did not teach us. And, and to get free, they are creating a life around that. So those are my people. And I'm freeing the bag during this time by focusing on my work um, in the in the cooperative that I I co-own with other Black women, it's called Woke Foods, and so we are doing um, some COVID nineteen meal supply work with a partnership with North, North Bronx Collective, preparing free hot plant based meals for our people in the Bronx. I'm also freeing the bag by saving a bunch of money. I ended up moving back home with my mom during this time and so I still am working well actually yeah I still am working <laughs> at the end of the month I will stop working and have been saving all the money that I make into a, a high yield savings account with a local credit union so that I can invest that money into buying land in my in my home country of the Dominican Republic yeah what about you Asia oh. introduce yourself Thank you for sharing all of that. Before we move on, can you also share about what is freeing the bag? Can you give us a little concept, a little understanding? So you gave us your beautiful examples of how you are freeing it. But can you tell us what is freeing the bag? What is that? Sure. So if you following us on, on social media, you have probably seen our logo. And the logo is literally a bag that usually represents like money, a money bag. And it's ripped open. And it, right and out of and out of the out of the hole, things like money, credit cards, houses, buildings are coming up. Also, words like time bank, co-ops, healing, um, money trauma is coming out. And so, freeing the bag is is our fun spin or funny spin to secure the bag. So it's not just about securing money and storing it away, but it's also money is layered, especially for Black people, especially for Black people who have an understanding of, of race and, and how, we've, how, how we've been used historically. And so freeing the bag is getting ourselves free and liberated together collectively and also working through, combing through the layeredness of money trauma, the layeredness of debt, of other things that that can that are put on Black people because of because of money. And historically, we've been 
yeah, like stripped away from resources and, and money through laws. And so that's essentially what we mean by free the bag, like just rip it open and just share it because we are abundant people who get to exist um, and get to thrive even if we are sharing money with each other or not just money, but also time and resources. Mm, yeah. So let's let's get into this life of free in the bag. Yes. All day. And we'll continue to talk about the ways that we free the bag as, as we go through. But who am I? I am Asia. My pronouns are they or she in that order. My identities. I'm a Black queer woman. I am. I also consider myself a bit like as Issa was was sharing about like she loves magic makers. I was like, I, I feel like I'm a magician. I also like to feel like I can like have my own alchemy to turn whatever the the sour lemons, the bullshit into magic, because I know that is in our lineage and I know that is in me. And I, and I know that I've done that. So I'm, I'm a magician. I'm going to claim that we, we could just, be, we can be black. Was it black girls rock, black magic, all of those, but we're also magicians as black folk. Um, who are my people, other ma- magicians, other world builders, folks who are trying to experiment with how to create freedom in the in this lifetime for themselves and for those in community. My folks are those who are rebels, people who see the current status quo of how shit is and and refuse to accept it. My folks are are people who queer things. Again, folks who are like, you know, you say gender is this and that, and I think it can be beyond. You say sexuality is this and that, and I think it can be beyond. And not just beyond in those ways in which they're understanding themselves, but how we're thinking and viewing solutions. Like, I think we can be querying so many things and we're taught not to, we're taught to, it's either this or that. And so I'm, I'm always interested in those who are, are looking beyond. Who else are my people? My people are Black Americans. My folks are from the South, from Florida. Let me try to think. I think those are, those are mostly my folk. Organizers. Of course, my people are organizers. My people are people who are dedicated and in this healing work with themselves to unlearn the dominant culture that that we've been programmed to believe will get us free. And folks who are just trying to heal themselves from the trauma that Black people, um, queer people, women, country face. So all of those people are my people. Shout out to them. Woo woo. How are how am I freeing the bag during this time? I am well, I think starting this podcast, to be honest, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it a buck. Yes. Um, <laughs> like Issa and I have been talking about this podcast for or just talking about these ideas for years, y'all. And you know, you just be caught up in all this other paid work that sometimes it just <laughs> gets to the bottom of the barrel. But um, no, talking about what it, I, I know that Adrian says, like what you put your attention on grows. And so I think freeing the bag is, is talking about freeing the bag with folk. Right. And so us being in the process of having a podcast, you ever taught somebody some stuff and then you got better at it. You're like, dang, I didn't even know. So I feel like that is a part of how I'm freeing the bag to to create collective. Oh. Y'all probably, if y'all hearing that little buzzing, that's one of my affirmations that I put on. That's another way I free the bag. 
to remind myself to be, to disrupt, to disrupt the capitalist flow of my day and to stop and really just think about myself. Um, and think I have about that too. I have an affirmation uh, alarm. Yep that that was mine. Mine ten thirty. Yep. And I try not to snooze it, but lately I've been snoozing it. But even if I don't cannot do like my full affirmation practice, I'll still like verbalize one affirmation in my mind at that specific time. That's right. Yeah, mine is mine is affirmation, and it can also be just like a check in with myself. So this one was, what am I noticing my body is in a flight, fright, or freeze about? So just a checking in on my stress level, like what is freaking me out? And so, of course, I'm doing this podcast. It's Juneteenth. And so that is putting my body in a certain stress, but it's good stress. And so I'm freeing the bag in terms of talking. I'm freeing the in this podcast. I'm freeing the bag with the affirmations. I'm freeing the bag. I also created like a, a resource community online called For Color Folks Hustling Time Bank, where folks share resources just for folks who are are folk of color that are grants, that are jobs, that are mutual aid, like funds and different things that can make sure we're keeping each other safe. And we try to vet them to be like, hey, I do know this person. I don't know this person so that we are putting each other on. And in that time, like folks have gotten grants, folks have gotten, you know, funding for mutual aid groups. Some folks have gotten jobs. And so all of those things are, to me, one way that we all then get to free the back collectively. I can't be free if my community isn't free with me. And so all of those ways are ways that I'm freeing the back. And then the last way is like Issa, exploring land, collective land ownership um, and stewardship. And so I am um, trying to figure out how to live mortgage-free and landlord-free through tiny houses. So I, I've saved up a group of money and crossing my fingers and my heart and saying prayers to the ancestors that I would be able to secure, manifest a tiny house in before September 2020. So that is how I am freeing the bag. I looked at the normal mortgage community and was like, that ain't good enough. I want to see <laughs> if there are other ways in which we as folks can find alternatives to landlords and mortgages and see if we if that can be a long-term thing for other folks to do as well. I know the Black ancestors are hearing you. Mm, please hearing us with hear this my podcast call. And are going to bless us. That's right. Bless us. We are really reimagining how to exist outside of, outside of the systems that harm us. And so Yo, we are we are black future folk. Mm-hmm. We are the Afrofuturists. Oh yeah, I never. You know, that's something I don't ever think about Afrofuturism, and that's another conversation. But yeah, now that I think about it, we are because we are reimagining. So that is a future in and of itself. Come on, right? Yes, thank you for that connection, Asia. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how we know each other? We kind of alluded to like us being in an apartment and talking about this stuff but there's also a little bit more to that story with us yes shout out to us and friendship and comradeship and all of those things isanet and i met as all good queer people meet through an ex of mine <laughs> um, sorry oh no um through an ex of mine um, who Issa was very good friends with. And yeah. And so through that, I was in a spot of looking for a new apartment and also really getting excited about these ideas of community land ownership. 
And so was Issa. And so it was it was meant to be that we would meet in that re-meet again in that way. Um, and so I ended up living with them, Issa and her friend and roommate um, at the time. And um, yeah, we were looking into trying to cooperatively own land together, but wanted to start off small first. So we were like, why don't we just live together, see how cooperative living works? Um, and let me tell you, listen, y'all, y'all don't, y'all don't listen to anything else we say on this podcast, please try things small before trying things big. Cause I think that's a vital lesson in, in, in building trust. And so, yeah, we didn't end up doing a collective land process together, but we are still friends and comrades. And then, yeah. We're still in a, in a liberation process together. Absolutely. Okay. And Issa, supporting each other yes. to get our collective land in the All places day. that we want it. Yes. Absolutely. Ashe to all of that. And and also, if Issa wanted to come live over on my land, once I have it, she already knows what it is. Same. I get out. I get out of all your boxes. I'll get out. You can't hold me in these chains. I'll get out. So, yeah, cool. So, on to segment two. So, now we're moving into sharing our stories, where we are with money. I know you're probably like, y'all sharing more stories. Yes, we are. We're sharing our stories with where we're at with money and what we're working on financially. So, Issa, you want to get us started? I'm going to share a little bit where I am with money and what I'm working on financially. And I started to understand personal, the personal finances world, just personal finances in general, as important in 2016. When I moved back to New York City, I had spent a year and a half living in my home country of the Dominican Republic. And when I came back, I worked as an AmeriCorps volunteer. And if you're familiar with that program, or if you're not familiar with that program, you get paid very little to volunteer in, in a community, an under-resourced community. And I was getting paid about $1,000, maybe $900 per month. And that's why I was living nah. in New York. And <laughs> I honestly just made it through because uh, my friend, mentor, um, comrade allowed me to live in her apartment for four hundred dollars, and so I was able to then have six hundred extra. Come through, and, um, friends. Also um, on food stamps, yeah. <laughs> but you know, for for an understanding of the kind of person I am, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, and I also had spent a year and a half before AmeriCorps living under a volunteer salary in the Dominican Republic. Mm. I was just very very comfortable and used to stretching a dollar. Mm. I ended up not liking my experience with AmeriCorps and I wanted to quit. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to dedicate more time to to community organizing work and deepening my understanding of racial equity work. But I was afraid because I, I was like, how the heck am I going to pay rent? But that same friend who I was living with was like, just do it and you can live here for free. So I was like, wait, what? That's not possible. And that was, I did accept, but it was hard to understand how my contribution, and she, you know, she made me realize that my contribution to to the household was beyond money. 
you know, because I, you know, I would cook. I'd also support with with the house getting clean, but also just like we were living in friendship together. And so we were able to also like weave more, weave relationship in that process. Mm. And so to see that, to see myself as a contribution, myself, my my personality, Mm. the way I am, my ways of being as a contribution to a household and that my contribution was not just monetary, was definitely like a layered of, a layered that, of, of trauma that was that that I got to remove during mm. that, that time, and I started a food business during that time. In community organizing work, I was seeing that a lot of our people were not not nourishing themselves for different reasons, and I wanted to feed people doing political movement work. So I started a cooperative called Woke Foods, and I learned Ooh. about this idea of cooperatives through the community organizing work that I was doing, and it. I, the idea is that you have a business where all the people that work there also own it. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting to me and appealing to me because I was like, yeah, that makes sense. If you're putting in work, you should own you should own the work. You should own the, the, the benefit. All day. Yeah. And I also got to work with my grandmother. Mm. Well, at the time was like in the process of getting her social security card and I was learning that you didn't have to be a person with a social security social security number to work in a co-op. You could actually just have like an ITIN, which is an, a, a different ID for people that are quote unquote like undocumented in, in the US. And at the same time, I got immersed in the farming world with other black people, black people who are growing food in the urban space, but also growing food in upstate New York. And so all of this like got me to a place where I was understanding that power and liberation were based on the land. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, and I'll explain a little bit more about that later on, but all of all of the the ways that we exist really started over like you know wanting to take land and wanting to get power through that. And so yeah, all these people and relationships, I got to learn about the creation of race and its connection to the systems and laws in the U.S. and even my home country of the Dominican Republic. Um, So I decided to dedicate myself to do work that was like reclaiming my humanity, reclaiming my ancestral inheritance and returning to live like my black ancestor lived before they were where they before they were kidnapped and forced to to work into slavery and right now what i'm working on um, and have been working on for for a while but i i find that each year i kind of dedicate more time to it is doing this with my people through collective living, collective economics, funneling money that I, you know, I earn into into people and, bis- and businesses that are owned by Black, Indigenous, people of color, and really trying not to spend money in white companies who cause harm to Black people and the planet. Ooh, say and that also, for the people in the back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also growing and preparing my own food, supporting my friends in imaginatory ways. That's a word that came out of one of like the, the brainstorm sessions that, that Asia and I would have in the, in the apartment with our other friends. And it's a word that essentially means 
taking inventory of what doesn't exist and imagining it possible. So imaginatory. And and yeah, I'm also in deeper practice with all of this and I'm focused on buying land to steward it and and having properties and places that I call home where I can live with my friends, where other people who may be having um, housing insecurity could also also live and get that respite that that I got when I lived with my friend for free and use that use also the land as as a respite for black people specifically for black women I have like dreams where like black women and black people get to come to the land um in the Dominican Republic and get to chill and rest yes Um, yeah so that's that's what I'm working on. What about you, Asia? What where are you with money, and what are you working on? Mm, well, first, yes, I love that so many of the things that you you shared, and I'm excited. Let me know when I need to book my flight to come to the to the DR so that I can be li- living um, in imaginatory ways as well. Under the tree, I got Under, you. That's right. Make sure it's a mango tree. I could just be. Yes, you already know. Double fisted mangoes. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I don't know if guava is a thing there, but that's also ugh, my yes, first heart. Guava, soursop. Oh, yes. Oof. Mm. Anyway, back to reality. I would say I started to understand money when I was like seven, and I began itemizing my mom's bills. I was. I remember I was at a grocery store, and my mom was like putting my stuff into the cart, and I was like, "But, but, yo, are is the rent paid? Is the is the cable bill paid? You know, as a kid, you got to make sure that cable bill is paid because you know, TV as an only child is your your first friend." And and so you know, I remember this lady being like, "Oh, how old is she?" And my mom was like, "Oh, she's seven. And I feel like since I was seven, I've been thinking about money because my mom's a single parent. She has always worked mad jobs like to be able to sustain being a single parent and getting higher education. Like the bills don't pay themselves. Them student loans don't pay themselves. And so I was always really clear that like." okay, whatever it is you do in life, you have to be able to sustain yourself. And then the other part was seeing my mom overwork. Like my mom worked like, I don't know, like 60 hour weeks. Um, And most people work like 40. Um, And she still works 60 hour weeks. Like I still be like, mom, you could could sit down somewhere. Um, But as a result, I think I both have a really interesting relationship with both time and money where I was like, yo, you know, you see how how much your mom works as a single parent trying to make up for not having income. I was always clear that I needed to have an abundance of time so that I like my freedom wasn't going to come in the capitalist means of just working really hard in order to like get to the top of some shit. It was going to come through finding ways around it so that I can have more time that I'm able to have just for me just for my people, just for my healing. And so, yeah, I I did go to college. I wanted to be a doctor because I thought this would be the fastest way to do it. But yeah, I ended up needing a credit card in, when I was in college because again, single mom, needing the money and sort of then began my first introduction into like capitalism, like how credit works, 
or rather how it don't work for you, (laughs) for me. (laughs) And so very soon I had like, had, it was closed. The account was closed because it was like, you ain't paying, you ain't paying your bill. And so it, you know, later on, as I think back at it, it was like, you know, I think a lot of Black students, Black and Brown folks come in, we have less inherited money than, you know, white families. And particularly if you're from a single parent, headed household. And so, you know, we're coming in and needing credit in order to survive in these higher education that's supposed to get us more money. But in the meantime, you're actually having to take out debt, more debt than you would. And you don't always have the tools to understand how it works. So, you know, I think that early introduction when I was like 17, 18, where I already had like a maxed out card that I didn't pay off made me a lot clearer about the impact of debt, impact of overworking, of having no time and and trying to figure out how I could like scam it. I was like, oh, these systems got to be scammed. Like, how can we work around them? Um, And so at around 30, I mean, there were other things that happened as well, but probably around 30 was like my next big sort of epiphany around money where I was like, you know what? I've been avoiding trying to own a home for a long time because I was like, oh, why do you need to own a home? Like I was like, I just didn't really understand how things work. But uh, I had, I, I knew someone who did own a home and we were talking about it. And I was like, oh, like you could create a lot of freedom for a lot of people if you have access to homes, right? You could like, you can safeguard people. Um, Mm -hmm. particularly with our community of having like queer trans folks who are pushed away from homes by families who don't always understand. It's like, I I remember like housing somebody and being like, shit, like this is freedom in and of itself. You just have a little bit of, little bit of space. So my mindset around it was, was really shifted about what I could offer myself and also what I could offer others. So I began trying to plot and figure out how I could get a home, but also in many different types of ways. First, I was like, okay, let me do it collectively with folks. Let me get a mortgage. And so then it sort of evolved to the point I am now about trying to be mortgage free um, and landlord free and, and trying to do it through tiny houses or van conversions, which is a big goal of Right now is the big goal of having a tiny house or a van conversion because it allows me to be mortgage free or mortgage low and and landlord free. And yeah, doing it, hopefully being able to do that with people to to collectively own land together. So very similar to what Issa was saying um, around collective land ownership. And then hopefully being able to share that with other folk. Like I think the other beauty and when we learn something is we, you know, we, we, we share it back. We throw it back because folks have done that for us. Like part of my ideas on even this have not been, I, I didn't just read a book and was like, oh, I got it. It was like being in kitchen conversations with folks and they're sharing what they up to. And I'm like, yo, that's dope. I never thought about that. And so I always try to tell people, you know, people are our three dimensional books, right? Like we view people like, books are two dimensions, right? We read them. They don't speak to us, but people speak back to us. They tell us their stories. They tell us their heart. And so we actually learn so much from people that we can never learn from books because it's missing a dimension. And so I try to really take in the dimensions of people who I'm noticing, who are magicians, who are right in front of me, who are world builders, who are right in front of me, who are queer and shit right in front of me, 
and really take that in and soak in all of that information. So I had some, you know, phenomenal folk organizers, largely who are doing economic justice organizing and trying to figure out housing. And, and they, and they, you know, shared some shit with me. And now I am on a different path. I'm on a different path towards similar to Issa, more economic justice. How can we get our people further away from destructive housing institutions? How can we get our people further away from the harm that overworking in nonprofits puts on our body and our mm-hmm. hearts and on our minds and on our labor, right? That we won't ever get that time back. And so I'm trying to figure out how can I, with other folks, share the information that I have about, you know, affordable, tiny or van conversions to get people further along in their journey to to freedom. Yeah. Cues I Get Out by Ms. Lauren Hale. Yes. Oh, and the last thing that I'll say is I realize, like, as an only child, I think we we think a lot about being alone in the world. But and, and I think I'm really programmed to do things by myself because of like, yeah. but I realize in this work, the necessity of being dependent. Like I know that disability justice folks talk about this a lot. Like, you know, more able-bodied folks take for granted that they can do more things by themselves. But I feel like similarly with, with folks of color, with queer people, with women, we really in order to tackle capitalism, to be able to survive it, we, we, we have to do this work collectively. Mm-hmm. And so I'm embracing being dependent on people. And I'm not saying just be dependent on anybody. Like that person, don't, don't act right. Don't be dependent on them. Uh-uh. Don't put trust in someone who is not deserving. But to be dependent in a way that is transformative, that is imaginatory, where y'all are dependent upon each other to get out is is something that I I'm building now and I'm looking forward to building more of uh, with every subsequent day and second and moment. So. This is for the girls that don't need no makeup when they wake up. For the ones who rockin' lace fronts, you know, I ain't gonna say nothing. Hashtag me your single. You fresh off the breakup. For the introverts. Segment three. Ethernet. Why are Black people in the U.S. and globally at the bottom? Before I get into that, before we get into that, I I did want to acknowledge that much of what I know is because of the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, as well as the work of Monica Dennis, Rachel Ibrahim, and Heidi Maria Lopez through Racial Equity and Liberation. And specifically, Heidi Maria Lopez, who has guided me in like my own process of understanding the nuance and layeredness of, of race as a person from the Dominican Republic. And so the way that I understand it and also is, is a truth is that people from Europe essentially started traveling and they had a goal of figuring out how to create power and collect power and also collect money for themselves. And so they started to visit places and turn to science and also anthropology to examine skulls from people that were indigenous to those places. So they were from those places. And so once they did that, they were like, oh, we'll create racial categories. And so they imagined things such as 
uh, strength or who is most intelligent. So the skull from the Caucasus Mountains, they were like, okay, we'll say this one is um, this one is human, this one is stronger, more intelligent, and just better superior. And we're gonna put this one first in our list of the race 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 category. So that's how we get, you know, the Caucasoid white category. Then they, they travel to East Asia, got a skull from Mongolia, and like, all right, so we're gonna call this yellow people. Then they visit Australia and find people, Aboriginal people, and these are, this is gonna be called Australoid or red people. Then they go to countries in Africa, they get skulls from there, and they are gonna, they decide, oh, okay, this is gonna be uh, black people which they said were actually not even under the human category. So black people were the racial category that was subhuman. So they essentially used this imagined idea that they were, and they were able to convince themselves that they could exterminate or remove indigenous people, uh, first peoples from those nations, from their lands, and also use them for their labor. And at the same time, also take natural resources from the different lands for creating a stronger economy that only they could really participate in or actually benefit from because they're because black people were participating in it as workers, as forced forced labor. And much of this happened and was practiced in ID, which is um, present day, the island that is occupied by the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Because of their imagination was that they pretended and created, was backed by science, and for them, white was better, and their Euro culture and ideas were, were better. Things like their education and religion and et cetera came with them. And so they forced, for example, indigenous people to become Eurocentric, like the, the Arawak uh, people of the island of Haiti, or the first peoples of the United States, forcing them to learn and be and learn English, at the same time taking their land, at the same time killing many of them, and also simultaneously traveling back and forth to countries in Africa to take people and take resources so they could create more more resources for their, their economy and so that black people could work for free for them. So there is still a lot of systems that, that were created using this imagined racial category. And what happened was that presidents, specifically presidents of, of the US used this imagined racial category to create laws, to create systems. So things like the police, things like universities, our entire education system, the how we exchange money, like actually using you know bills and banks, architecture, all of architecture as we see it now, because there there was a ways to like build both structures that were, was created by indigenous people. So it was a mixture of taking the things that indigenous and black people had in their culture, 
things that like benefited them and then removing the things that didn't benefit them that created like autonomy and or maybe like spiritual strength taking those things and replacing it with things that were eurocentric as a way to like remove their humanity and justify creating economic power for themselves Woo. does that make sense it doesn't make sense but yeah it, do- it doesn't it doesn't make sense and and capitalize and capitalism makes it make sense right to extract labor for free to extract land for free that that makes it make sense right that makes it justifiable as to ra- like rationalize those actions as being okay yeah and i'll say that i you know in my explanation i tried not to use the word capitalism cuz i know that when i first started to get into, for example, community organizing. Capitalism was a word that was used a lot and I didn't always understand what that meant. And so I'd say that capitalism is an economic system that was created using racial categories. Yeah. Is that an explanation? I think, yeah, like if I was explaining it to Odi Sané, I feel like that's how I would explain it. Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree. And it is, you know, also a system that is is a supremacist system um, that benefits one group over the other. Yeah, is used in a way to validate any type of disempowering or, or dehumanizing activities. You can, you know, steal labor from women and not give them any type of money in return for all of the work that they do in the home. Um, and that's okay. You can still labor from black and indigenous people or land resources. Um, and that's okay. And, and just like, like now, right. You can steal the life of black people in this country. And that's still viewed as okay under capitalism. So yeah, thank you, Isanet, for giving us that, that history, you know, the story we we were talking about theft because the story of of how we get to where we are now is a story of theft. I think people and myself included, when I was at different points in my in my own journey, that racism or a version of racialized capitalism ended with slavery. Like, why are people still going on about this? And I've I've heard white people say it. I've heard black people say it. I've heard all different types of people say this. And you know, or it ended with integration, right? So Jim Crow ended, racism ended. That's how we got Barack Obama. And, you know, the thing about it is when we think about survival in this country and thriving in this country, it really is a race whereby some people have gotten a head start because of their theft and other people have have been harmed and been there have been active in, in impediments and roadblocks to them running the race. So, you know, when we think about that in the in the US, you know, there is what Isanet described as the stealing of labor from black bodies and the stealing of land and lives of indigenous people that gave white people the head start, right? If I'm trying to build a home and I steal someone else's labor to build that home and we're in a competition of building homes, I'm going to get my home built faster than you. And so that is when we think about how white people in this country are so far ahead. 
it is through theft and it is through labor extraction that that they have gotten that head start. And so it begins with that and then it continues. Land is stolen further west of the Mississippi so that all of that land that was indigenous land is now given basically to white people for a dollar with the Homestead Act. And so I think about that as it relates to my own family, um, where my great grandfather was sharecropper um, and was supposed to be paid. And instead of getting paid, he would he had his his wages stolen. Um, and so the history of racialized capitalism is a lot of black people experiencing that. And who are they going to go to? Right. Who are going to be their protectors to say this is messed up? They're going to go to the largely white majority courts. Are they going to go to the largely white majority police who at that time had just moved from being a slave, a a slave catcher? Right. Because that's the original role of police to Mm -hmm. police enslaved people who had run away. So, you know, when we think of some of the reasons as to why it hasn't ended, that's the first part, right? Where where there's widespread theft of labor and land. And then it continues, right? When Black people were trying to buy homes, they would give them to usually a white realtor or a white landlord. And, and many times they would take that money and pocket it. And so the Black person thinks they now have this house but come to find out that that person never put the house in the Black person's name. And so again, widespread theft, right? When we think of other means of trying to move up the social ladder, like education, for a very long time, Black people could not go to schools of higher education. And when they did enter them, it was so difficult to get through them. Even now, right, we think about our own experiences. They're very violent, right? We'll have professors that are, you know, racist as fuck, won't pronounce your name right, call you by another person's name, et cetera, et cetera. Will tell you things to your face that are dehumanizing of your of your experience. All of those things to say when we think, well, why are black people still at the bottom in this country? There are things that have happened with education, with the uh, criminal justice system, with housing, with healthcare, land, with labor, even to this day, 25, uh, the employment discrimination rates for Black and Latinx people in this country haven't changed in 25 years, meaning that it has not improved. So, you know, we're still seeing very, very high rates of employment discrimination. So when you ask, well, why why are these people still at the bottom? Those are still some of the reasons where that is happening today. And we see that playing out with COVID and we see that playing out with um, the uprisings against the police. Well, also because they were, everything that you're mentioning, all the systems were created to keep Black people at the bottom. That too. It's like, it's, it was designed, it was imagined that way. And it's still being acted out in that way. And I think something else that I, I was talking to my friends about in terms of education, there's a lot of like specifically um, people from countries in like Latin America have like low education rates and like really struggle with the educational system. And as someone who, who really struggled with education and school, but once I started learning how to farm and cook and and carpentry, I didn't really struggle with that. I think it's also 
really hard for, for us to adapt into learning in this Eurocentric focused way. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we think about some of the ways in which our people rebel, right, against these these classrooms and this way of teaching, some of this is that we we never, this is not in our lineage. This is not who we are. And so it is hard spiritually to adapt to mm-hmm. to these systems. And so we we get to in, recreate ways in which our folks don't have to go through these systems like this, that we get to create new classrooms that center our own humanity when we are moving towards freedom. So. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you can feel it in the streets On a day like this day It feel like summer Uh, So our first segment of the next time you hear from us, practices in freeing the bag, which is exactly what it sounds like. How are we practicing and providing things that y'all can do in your real lived life to free the bag? Much like we offered here where we gave understanding our money stories and our money trauma. And we also talked about the ways in which We are our stories, our larger visions. We will be giving practices for you to actually try out um, and our stories around what we've tried. Part of the inspiration for this for me has been that through these practices and collectively freeing the bag, I've been able to save over $10,000 in the last year, which for me is a lot, mostly because I still be living my same, mostly same ass life. Like, I'm not out here like counting coins every day. I'm not out here sacrificing everything. I think, you know, having things that I can buy occasionally for my personal wellness and enjoyment is important. And I've managed to save this and still be good. So, yeah, I want to pass on some of those practices about how I did it and how I did it with with my people. Um, And I also want to pass on some practices around how I've been able to save time and find time. So last year I I published an article. Um, I did a lot of healing work with like some sound healers and and different folks. And so I want to be able to share how I was able. Oh, and we started this podcast. So I want to be able to share how I was able to reclaim time for myself, not just for work, um, not just for others um, and share that with y'all and how you can do it. Isanette, let's hear from, from your, your stories. Well, definitely being in friendship with you is inspired me to also be in practice of many different things. Um, not Same. just friendship with you, but being in 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 friendship with with other other Black people, Black fans who are are liberating themselves. And one of the things I was able to do in this in this process, and I've been doing, is divesting from major banks and putting my money into local banks and credit unions, which includes not just checking accounts, but high yield savings accounts with a higher interest than the other ones like Ally Bank and all the other ones around that are, um, people love Ally Bank, but I, I think it's actually owned by JP Morgan Chase, um, mm-hmm. in the research. I've also been able to learn how to invest in retirement accounts using socially responsible stocks which is not completely safe from evil, but it's better than investing in like Amazon 
or Microsoft or all the other you know companies that are wreaking havoc in, in our world. I was able to raise my credit score actually with the help of Asia, and that's something that does require trust. But we also want to talk about that, like how much trust did we have to build for that to even happen? Yeah, and then also owning the cooperative business with people in community and my family. I own my business, my business with my grandmother, and we work together. And then in terms of like the more the 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 more internal work healing the scarcity and money trauma that I grew up with. Grew up with because of family, but also grew up with because of systemic systemic oppression. And then, yeah, similar to Asia, like reclaiming my time, learning how to work smart and get paid for my value versus like hours. Yep. So listen, you don't want to miss this segment. You don't want to miss this podcast where we talk about it all, the good, the bad, right? It's not just like the YouTube. You just you know, try these five things and it'll all work out. We're going to tell you the truth, all of it. Um, So you don't want to miss it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we're also going to do a little bit of chisme, aka gossip or the tea. Um, We're going to, I think one of the things that's been going around on Black Twitter lately is the publishing paid me hashtag, Mm. where um, the author of my, my kidney started it and she posted like, a publishing hashtag publishing paid me and how much of uh, the advance she got for for her books and then other people she in, she was asking white authors specifically to share also how much they got paid and the numbers the difference were astounding it was like six figure versus six burgers <laughs> and, um and like roxanne gave Roxanne Gay posted how much she got, and it was wild, wild. Mm-hmm. It's like, like brilliance, and and to see the comparison was wild. So yeah, we want to talk about that. We want to talk about all the ways that like we think something is is good, or is this other thing, and it actually isn't. I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot about about Jay Z and Beyonce in this segment because they're always coming up with with something. And uh, yeah, we're also excited about other episodes. What are we? What are we? What are we going to be doing next week? Yeah, yo. Before we talk about next week, though, also listen. If y'all y'all should really try the publishing paid me in your real life, though. We don't all got to be authors to try to get the tea on on how our orgs or nonprofits or whatever wherever we are how there's a pay disparity. Yeah, so, listen. Google Google sheets going around Condé Nast right. some staff on Condé, on Condé Nast started one and then they and they actually put it like we want to know your race your ethnicity yeah. your position your how That's do you identify right. with your gender like they wanted to know all of it and how much people are getting paid um, people are like, wow and I think for me I'm not surprised it's just it's it's I think it's good to 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 get to get more clarity that's right so yeah i mean this didn't mean to turn into a practice but everything that we share really you know we share as as a way to be in practice like so we're clear about what we're advocating for right and so next week you know we're gonna shift a little bit away from talking about money to talk about that other resource 
that we often underestimate and undervalue, which is our time, which is wild because money you can get again. Time is finite. Like once that shit's out, once your clock is over and, you know, whoever calls you to the next lifetime, that's it. We'll talk about how to reclaim our time, right? Like, you know, our Maxine was saying it in the court or rather in Congress, but we're talking about in your life. How do you reclaim your time? And so, you know, folks are working from home during this time and it can feel like, damn, I'm doing a lot more work than I did before. So how are you taking time for yourself, for your own um, healing, for your own uh, space to deal with the traumatic moment that we're in as Black folks in this country? And also for whatever you're trying to build next, right? That, that like, you know, folks are talking about coming out of this moment, having map projects and having like grants and shit done. So it's like, how are you able to reclaim time just for yourself, just for your own dreams, hopes, and aspirations? And so we're going to be bringing on our people in our community next time to talk about how they're able to do the things that they love while also getting our people free, while also reclaiming the time. Stay tuned. We'll see you next week. And happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth, y'all. Oh, one last thing that I'll say about Juneteenth as an edit from what I said earlier, Juneteenth was the ending of slavery or like the celebration of it. But there is an addendum or like a, a switch up, which is that in Texas, slavery had already been abolished for two whole years. And so black people had to come and, and, and folks had to come and get those people and tell them that they were free two years after it had ended. And so Juneteenth was when that happened. And so it is a commemoration of, of that time of freedom. And so, you know, that's, that's a lot of information for us to be thinking about now. You know, how, how are we sharing our freedom? How are we sharing the good news of the information we know with people to keep them free and to get them out of bondage? <sighs> timely, timely, as timely as it was, you know, 200, 300 years ago, it's timely now. So thank y'all. Thank you.